Hey everybody, you're listening to Top Quartile, where we bring you stories from the front lines of growth in community-focused financial services. Welcome back to the Top Quartile podcast. I'm your host, Dan Marks, the president of Infusion, and really excited to have Rilla on the show today. So Rilla, welcome to the Top Quartile. Thank you. I've been listening and I'm a fan, so it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. We go back a long time, but tell folks a little more who may not know you as well about your background and current board of director roles. Sure. First of all, my name Rilla means babbling brook, so I'm not sure how long you want this podcast to go, but I can talk for a while. (laughs) I have been in the banking industry for about 35 years. I started actually at Bain Consulting, where we worked with financial services, and actually was part of the team that developed the net promoter score. And I'm dating myself, but we also came up with the very first loyalty credit card which was Nations Bank and U.S. Air at the time. So that was early days of loyalty reward cards. And then I went on from there. I worked at PNC. I worked in corporate strategy and wealth management there and then went to SunTrust, which is now Truist. And I was chief marketing officer. I ran digital and I ran the retail bank there. And then I was recruited to a fun, funky organization called Umpqua Bank in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, Oregon. And I was chief strategy officer and ran innovation and a lot of the functional areas to really modernize the company, including technology, data, analytics, call centers, marketing, et cetera. And then recently retired and now am actually on a few corporate and nonprofit boards. So I sit on the board of Coastal Community Bank, which is a banking as a service provider in Everett, Washington. And they provide the back-end operations for, I'd say, about 25 fintech companies who serve millions of customers with very interesting value propositions. I'm also on the board of Atlantic Union Bank, which is a $20 billion bank out of Richmond, Virginia. And they are a pretty traditional commercial bank, but very tech forward in how they are serving their customers. And I'm on the board of Nimbus, which is a modern core provider, really competing with FIS and Fiserv and trying to create some more nimble and cost-effective tech stack solutions for banks. And then My side hustle is I do some work in homelessness, which is a real issue on the West Coast, and I'm on the board of Central City Concern, which serves a vast set of issues that are causing homelessness. So that's a little bit about what I'm up to right now, and it's a pretty fun portfolio of work, I must say. Nothing like being retired, right, and having to fatten back. Retired is a word I don't really understand. I'm just not a full-time employee with one organization, but I stay pretty busy with all of these different organizations. Right. And doing some important work and and not least with the uh, helping address the homeless issue. So what is maybe one fascinating personal fact that most people don't know about Rilla? Well, a fun one is I juggled on the top of a six-person water ski pyramid when I was seven years old. So that's pretty fun. And given I'm six feet tall, it's hard for people to believe I was the top of any pyramid. But probably more, more interesting and more kind of applicable to the way I think is I'm dyslexic. I don't put that on my resume. I don't promote that. So it's probably something most people don't know. But I really actually think it has provided me with some superpowers dyslexics 
have a way of thinking and macro patterns and integrating various concepts together. I call it the balcony view. We can look down at issues and kind of put together puzzle pieces. And there are a lot of famous people who have been dyslexic, like Steve Jobs and Einstein and Jennifer Aniston. I actually think it's given me quite a few things that are difficult, but also a lot of capabilities that have been very handy throughout my career. Well, how did your bank, your background as a bank executive prepare you for what you're doing now and your current focus? There's nothing like having done it for when you're advising somebody to actually know how hard yeah. it is to really do it. And having been an operator, I know how difficult it can be to even make small changes through large organizations. So I think that gives me some empathy for the executive team that I'm working with in these various organizations. But I also know that as an operator, it's really easy to get focused on working in the business and not pull up and work on the business. And I used to say you need bifocals for any kind of executive leadership job in a bank. You need to look down at the here and the now and make sure you're making earnings and really delivering and managing risk. But at the same time, you need to be able to look out on the horizon and see where you're going and making sure you are, in fact, headed in the right direction and you have a really good viewfinder on, on the vision of what you're aiming for. And as a board member, I think it gives us even more of an opportunity to not be down in the details of working in the business. And instead, we can work on the business and help guide the executive team to kind of look up more often and make sure they're really confident in the way they're going. I love the bifocal illustration. In that same vein, as a board member, what are some of the key issues you focus on yourself versus delegating to management? In the board world, there's a phrase I think is really important, and it's noses in and fingers out. <laughs> and that is your job as a board member is to kind of sniff around and see where there might be risks or opportunities that aren't being addressed but not to get your fingers in there and get in the weeds and tell the leadership team what to do. They are the executors. They know, they know their business. And our job is to just make sure that everything is being handled safely and soundly and that there's a clear strategic direction. And also making sure that they're balancing what I was just referring to of near-term and short-term or balancing perform with transform. And especially for public companies, the two bank boards I'm on are both public companies. And being part of a public organization, you're always focused on the next earnings call. And it really puts too much pressure on the near term. And I think as board members, our job is to make sure that there continues to be focused on the earnings call that's five years out. How are we positioned for the future? And I, and I think that's, that's a really important role. And both of them are important, right? You got to deliver for this year, but you got to spend enough calories. And and so when you think about that far, three, five years, there's a cone of uncertainty there. So how do you sort of think about what are some of those things that are the might be's and how does a bank sort of address that that sort of cone of uncertainty? Yeah, I think there's a, a really different approach to how you think about perform versus transform. Even the people that you hire, the people who are great at executing a task flawlessly a thousand times in a row are different than the people who are creating something new from scratch, a whole new kind of risky idea. So I think 
banks need to maybe even have different teams that are focused on perform and transform and have a portfolio of transformational opportunities that they're pursuing. No one of them is over-invested in to the point where if it doesn't succeed, the bank is at risk. But there's, there's a range of ideas that are being pursued. And it's okay to admit when one isn't working and redirect and learn from it and, and move on and maybe pull out of that idea. And if something's starting to get traction, maybe start doubling down on that other idea. Kind of like your investment portfolio. You don't want to be overly invested in a high-risk stock. You want to have a nice, balanced investment portfolio. Same thing with how you're thinking about transformational ideas. And I think banks historically, you know, we're risk managers, tend to really commit to an idea, put a deadline and a business case in place, and come hell or high water, we're going to hit that, and maybe even ignore some early signs that perhaps this isn't the best idea, or perhaps this isn't what the customer needs, or perhaps we aren't able to execute the way we thought. And we're reluctant to claim failure. And I think we need to be, we need to really focus on the culture of transformation, which is it's okay to be wrong, but let's learn from it. And let's also make sure that the risk around being wrong in that area isn't something that's going to jeopardize the, the bank's longevity. Your uh, stock portfolios are probably a good one, right? You, you might take more risk with 5% of the portfolio. You're not betting the farm on something that's unknown. That's right. And so when you, when you think about the, some of those key innovation ideas, what are some of those, tran- or to your, your word, transformation? Are there a set of kind of key issues that most banks should have a, a point of view on? Well, Dan, like like you, I have a pretty deep background in marketing. And so my answer to almost every question is, it's all about the customer. It's about the customer. And so the way you should be thinking about innovation is what are unmet needs those customer customers have? And or are there segments of the population that our current product lineup doesn't serve and doesn't serve well? So either we're coming up with new product adjacencies to expand what we're offering to our current customers, or we're creating really niche offerings to customers who have been underbanked, unbanked, or who have needs that just aren't being met by our traditional products. And I think one of the things that leads us to be a lot of Me Too bankers is and not serve these underserved or rethink our policies, procedures, or products in order to meet needs of customers that have historically been unmet is that we tend to all look alike. <laughs> we tend to all have similar back, similar-ish backgrounds. And when we think of customer needs, we often are thinking of ourselves. And I really think it's critical, as I'm sure you do as a marketer, to go out and really understand those unmet needs of customers that don't look like us, of customers that have different financial dynamics, different credit scores, different histories, different backgrounds, and rethink why is it that banks aren't serving them and how can we think differently in order to put products in their hand and help them be financially stable. And that requires us also to have some different people around the table who are advocating for those customer segments and representing those needs. Everybody has has a tendency to be the focus group of one. And so to your point, that's where it's really helpful to have people that come from different perspectives that can you know, spark those 
inspirations. Yeah. I had a friend from business school who was a Navy SEAL, and he went on to run a makeup company. One of the things he said is, never for an instant do I pretend to know what the customer wants. And that that made him a better CEO because he had to intently listen to the customer and never projected his beliefs on his customer base. That's like the ultimate leadership humility, right? You know, I, I am not the consumer probably for the, most of my products. And so I'm, I'm forced to listen more. It goes with leadership too, by the way. I have never done the jobs of the people who have reported to me, or actually in, with one exception. I ran departments that I never had run before. And I think what that made me do is really trust the team I had underneath me, that they had the technical expertise. And my job was was to integrate what we did as a department with what the bank needed overall in order to deliver a, a comprehensive and integrated solution. Again, kind of using my dyslexia around connections and patterns and integrated strategies. And then trusting my team to be able to execute. Similar to the the board roles I'm in now, I trust the teams to execute. My job is just to make sure we're clear on what direction we're heading. You mentioned the herd instinct. It's a, I think one of the challenges banks have is, and I, and I love banking. I've you know, spent most of my career in it. We work with some really fantastic banks around the country, but it is some of that is the the regulated nature of what we do leads to some similarities. That's just a fact. But you talked about where to focus and which customers do you focus on. That's also important because so often you have maybe a bank that came from a specific geographic area and they have a real passion for that geographic area. They tend to view, oh, my focus is this this area, mm-hmm. whatever they define it, city, state, region. So as you've seen been different organizations, what's your sort of view on focus? And is it geography? How does geography play in that? How does other types of focus? How do you pick your where you focus and maybe where you decide not to focus. It's interesting. The whole definition of community has changed. So a community bank, which is, as you just mentioned, used to be around your physical location. That was your definition of community where eyeball to eyeball kind of branch interactions were the, the primary way to, to build connection, to build trust and to offer advice. Now, in this era, and especially with COVID, the definition of community is no longer anchored in a location. It's actually more anchored in commonality. People who are experiencing similar things, value certain things, are going through the same sorts of challenges, and you seek each other out because you have something in common. And I think for banking, this is a huge opportunity for us to think differently and to think about those niche segments that don't have to live in within two miles of your branch, but have a unique set of financial needs. And you can build a community of people who are experiencing that same challenge and offer them, well, first of all, understand what their challenges are, push back on maybe some of the thinking and policies that have limited our ability to meet those needs, and start serving a niche community that has something more in common than just where they live. And more and more banks are able to create kind of niche digital banks that can go out to a much broader population, geographically broader population using digital first technologies and partnering with organizations like Anembus who can give them the technology in order to stand up a 
separate, often separately branded digital bank that is very targeted to a very narrow set of customers. There's some great examples out there today of truck drivers. Truck drivers have all sorts of invoicing issues. They have all sorts of needing to go across the country. They need to make sure that they're billing the appropriate client for their jobs. What if we could help them with that? Or contractors. Contractors, again, need to take account of all their invoices. They need to pay their subs. They need to collect from their clients. What if a bank could take that into account? And so I think the more more narrowly you focus a customer segment or a community, the clearer you are with what their needs are, and then the more creative you are in how you can serve those needs, you can stand up a niche bank relatively quickly and give it a try and see how it goes. And if it doesn't work, shut it down. Maybe try another. Try four or five. Do them all in parallel. I had a, another CEO on the show recently who, who observed niche is the new community. And he runs a very fast-growing community bank that has defined the focus is there's, there's three essential communities that they're serving that certainly has an anchor in where they are physically, but it's, he's saying that's a kind of a, a focus of following those customers. As you think about your experience, kind of con- comparing contrast being on the board versus working in a bank, what are maybe three key lessons learned that you believe would be helpful for bank management teams to understand? As a board member going into a board meeting, often the board package can be easily over 500 pages, sometimes a thousand. And there's just an overwhelming amount of information on running an organization. And that's true for board members the same way it is true for employees or teammates, that you can get overwhelmed in a sea of data or information. And what is really important is culling it down to the most important priorities. So a very clear and articulated strategy that everyone in that organization and on the board can recite easily, that then is connected to a very clear set of scorecard metrics, a balanced scorecard that is measuring performance on progress against those key priorities, not just financials, which are rear view mirror, but lead indicators of how are we doing with our customers? How are we doing with our innovation efforts? And then really reinforcing that information as the priority focus when we're in a board meeting or when you're talking to your team. So I'd say the the lesson there is just crisp strategy connected to metrics and then aligning an organization around that. And it is amazing what can happen with thousands of employees getting behind a common set of priorities. You can really move quickly. And so I would say that's, that's definitely one key lesson learned is simplify, communicate, measure, and align. The other I'd say is culture. Culture matters, and it's a hard thing to measure, and it's a hard thing to quantify or define. But at the end of the day, your financial brand is just your people, and it's how your people are interacting with their customers. It's how they're interacting in the community. It's how they're interacting with each other. And Keeping your finger on the pulse of culture is a critical conversation that needs to occur in the boardroom. It often hasn't in the past. And I think that this new kind of war for talent is helping more companies realize that at the end of the day, that is the raw material that makes or breaks your organization is your culture and your and your team. So I would say putting an increased focus on that is absolutely vital. And I guess a third one would be the importance of transparency of open, authentic communication and 
admitting when something's not working, as I mentioned earlier, being willing to say, we tried something good for us. Here's what we've learned. Here's what we're going to do about it. And here's what we're going to try next. And to take the negative stigma away from having something that doesn't work and instead put that stigma on not trying something or on only doing things that everyone's already done before and only going for what's guaranteed to work. So I think shifting from zero risk tolerance to risk, but within, within boundaries and a willingness to learn from failure. Yeah, that's, it's so critical and it's, it's hard to do, right? Because as, as managers, especially if you're driving to a result, our jobs in some ways is to convert ambiguity to clarity, but it's so important, particularly back in that longer term time horizon and say, this is something that I'll, I need to, to try. If I try 10 things, some percentage of those will not quote unquote work. But you know, like you said, it's what do I learn from that? And do you fail fast? If something's not going on the trajectory, that's a good trajectory. That's always probably the trickiest thing is to say, you know, when, when do I stop something that's maybe off to a slow start? Cut your losses. <laughs> The other thing is, if you're pretending it's working, the people who are working on it know better and they know you're masking something. And if you're not giving them a voice to be able to say what they see, you're not getting the best work from them. And you're pretending you have the answers when you're actually not as close to the issue as those folks are. So it can really, it can really hurt the culture to try to push ahead and pretend everything's okay. It's not. And it seems like you've got kind of these huge bank transformation programs come in and out of vogue. I think back to over the past 20 years, there's different waves. But any thoughts on your comments around how to avoid the twin traps of trying to be too aggressive and too massive on a transformation program as opposed to not doing enough? Where we sit today from a technology perspective is so different than where we were 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago. Where transformation in the past, digital transformation in particular, was so dependent on a huge capital outlay with a traditional provider that would promise results in five years. And the path from here to there was resource intensive, it was risky, it was filled with hard steps. And I think now we can be much more nimble because we can partner with organizations with fintechs or with cloud-based cores or other organizations that can enable us to trial our strategy, trial our transformation without having to change our core, without having to change our core digital banking platform. We can partner and test things much, much more nimbly using APIs, using clouds, using really great partnerships. So I would say the biggest thing is not to think about what do you need to make in order to test your transformation. It's who can you partner with in order to get something to market relatively quickly and see if it works with a less capital uh, outlay in the beginning. Yeah, very well said. There's, there's a lot of specialty providers. I just think about what we do with clients is a lot of times it's hey, I need to accelerate data analytics or data-driven marketing. Hey, let me go do that quickly. Not that you couldn't necessarily do that in, internally or do it with hiring people, but it's an augment. It's a team expansion or a specialty expansion. And it's you know, kind of same thing with transformation initiatives. There are organizations where that is their specialty. That is what they focus on. They are really good at. Why would you try to replicate that when you're a bank? Partner with those people where that's their expertise and just integrate it into your offering. And what the bank should be focused on is who's the customer, what are the needs, 
what are the services they need to provide, and then how can they weave together the best solution using what they have or who they can partner with. Well, Rilla, the, the time has, has flown by. It's always great to talk to you for very good reason. As we, as we close out, you could go back in time and sit down to that slightly younger HBS grad or Bain consultant and share what you know now with your younger self. What would you share? First of all, that a career can be a jungle gym. It's not always a ladder. It's not vertical. Sometimes you have to go sideways in order to be able to move up. And sometimes it may feel like you're on the slide, but um, what can you learn from that and get back, get back up there? A lot of people say, like, what was your career path and how did you move from job to job? And my number one answer is just do a good job where you are and doors will open. And when doors open, be willing to walk through them. And for women in particular, I see so many women that are reluctant to throw their hat in the ring for jobs because they don't have all of the requirements. They haven't checked every single box. Studies say that men, on the other hand, will throw their hat in the ring if they have like 10% of the requirements. And so I just say, go for it. You know, go for it. You grow the most when you're most uncomfortable. Don't um, hold back. So that would be one. Another, another one, I've had a lot of coaching through the years. And one is, it's not what you do necessarily, it's how you make people feel. And so as a leader, when you're leading thousands of people, yes, your actions need to be aligned with your words for sure. But it's also, how are you making people feel? Are you inspiring them? Are you empowering them? Are you building them up? Are you giving them voice? Are you truly listening? Are you willing to admit you don't know? Are you empathetic to their challenges, especially during COVID? And so as a leader, I think we need to focus a little bit more on just how we're being and a little bit less on what we're doing and saying. A third kind of aligned with that is to be a better leader, you need to lead a better life. Nobody wants to emulate a leader who is all work. All they do is work all day. They're grinding it out. Their ego is driven by how many hours they're working and how much they're producing. And people don't aspire to that. So finding balance in your own life actually can lift your whole team up. Be more balanced. Bring more of yourself to the workplace. Inspire others to do the same. And fresh minds do the best work. And minds that have been open to other things and explored other passions can bring some of that passion into the workplace more freely. Thanks again for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, I look forward to listening to your future episodes. That's it for today on Top Quartile. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Top Quartile wherever you find podcasts on any podcast app. And while you're at it, we'd really appreciate a five-star rating. And if you're interested in getting an opportunity assessment, head over to infusionmarketinggroup.com to learn more. Thanks for listening.